Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the new sea Welcome back for episode two of the Art and um, Science of Running podcast. And we're actually here in Malk's home this time in Cochrane, Alberta, <laughs> Canada. And uh, just to give you a sense, it's slightly different layout in the basement. Um, we do have a number of the same books. Um, uh, Malk has an extensive library here um, about all things movement related. And uh, we even got some Phil Jackson in there, Phil Knight. <laughs> but even for those non-Nike uh, people, we've got some other books in there. Um, we also have a lot of Malk's jerseys from his uh, competitive days. And also a number of jerseys from some of the world's best distance runners. So we've got Mo Farah and uh, um, Kim Bekele, um, some athletes that, that Malk has worked with. And, and so... It's the basement and a gym of sorts and uh, a workshop, uh, a true, the, the workshop of a true engineer uh, have actual mechanical tools and um, also some, some strength training um, tools here as well. Um, so Malk, you're here in, in Cochrane and it, it is it true that your family moved here to work at the at the Garmin plant here there's a there's an R&D plant for Garmin here in yeah. Cochrane yeah that's a good uh, that's a good question so um, for people that are listening they don't know this actually a lot of people don't know this and they think okay Garmin's an American company but actually um, uh, many years ago Garmin bought a what was originally a startup here called Dynastream and Dynastream started in the garage, I think five or six people, and uh, in Cochrane, Alberta, because it was a bunch of people who used to work in telecoms and other companies in Calgary, moved out to Cochrane, which is a small town outside of Calgary. We're about 15 minutes outside towards the mountains. And uh, so Garmin bought that and didn't really do a huge amount with it initially until more recently. Uh, now they've put their logo all over it and Dynastream doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. And now it's called Garmin Cochrane. And, uh, what surprises a lot of people is that basically all of the R&D work is, is done here. So whilst there's a corporate headquarters and other critical activities happening in, uh, in Kansas, the, um, the really interesting, well, I think is interesting <laughs> anyway, um, kind of trial and error, experimentation, testing, um, you know, warranty testing, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of work done here in um in what is now called Garmin Cochrane, which I believe there's around about 120 employees in the office here, pretty much the biggest town, um, I should say the biggest uh, office in, in Cochrane, or one of the biggest. And um, yeah, we came here in 2012. I lived in Denmark before, and if anyone's into 
sports science, who's listening to this, you, you probably know about Denmark. It's a kind of a powerhouse of sports science research. And um, uh, we came here to 12. My wife basically got the job at Garmin to work as, uh, as an engineer developer uh, specializing in the wireless protocols. Um, and uh, yeah, I kind of came along uh, as still working as a consultant scientist at the time and um, spending a lot of time coaching people um, and uh, analyzing performance, but also analyzing movement patterns as well. And then obviously, you know, one thing led to another. I, I sort of started to meet the guys in, in Garmin and then started to um, uh, sort, of, sort of partner up and work with, um, and specifically with the, the team that deals with field testing. So of prototypes and uh, lifetime warranty testing of products as well. And um, yeah, I can't kind of remember how many uh, projects exactly it was, but um, it was stuff like um, the, uh, the 220, 225 watches, the uh, 735 watch, the 610, 620 watch, um, various heart rate systems, some prototype stuff as well, the original wrist heart rate system, um, uh, playing around with some power, running power stuff as well before Stride existed and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, mostly focused around running um, rather than other sports. There was some triathlon stuff, but mostly running. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm sure throughout the course of uh, this show, we <laughs> we could probably dedicate entire episodes to some of those metrics that, that you were testing and that you were working with. Uh, as a coach, at least I receive a number of questions. The, the majority of the questions I receive actually have to do with uh, the accuracy of those different data points or data sets and <laughs> which which heart form of heart rate measuring heart rate or or measuring distance or pace um, are more accurate and so um, hopefully we can pick your brain a little bit and ask about some of those um, some of those metrics and, and which which technologies are more precise or why there might be variation from one device to another and, and things like that so um, I felt like it would be beneficial to get a little bit about that that biographical information we we know you have background in the sciences, but, but the actual hands-on uh, work yeah. with <laughs> with some of the wearable devices that are on the market or have been on the market, and you've been part of that development. Um, there yeah. aren't many people with the type of expertise that you have, and so um, rather have you answer those questions than, than me try and <laughs> guess based on my understanding of how it all works. So, um, great. So, you know, recently you've been... Um, working, um, like we discussed last time, in, both in your clinic in, uh, in Calgary, but yeah. you also do some remote gate analysis and, and from time to time you actually travel to and work with groups doing some consulting. Sure. And, yeah. and one of the projects that you've been working on recently was, was with Elliot Kipchoge's group out mm -hmm. in Kenya and in running. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that work? Uh, I know you may not be able to share every <laughs> bit of information you've been uh, um, downloading or analyzing with them, but uh, but what can you share with us about that group, yeah. how that how that project started, and, and what you're hoping to yeah. gain from that? Awesome. So um, yeah, I can kind of give people a, hopefully paint a bit of a picture for people of um, of what's uh, what's happening and. Um, yeah, uh, you're right. There are um, uh, a couple of people that probably kill me if I mention certain things. So I've got to be really careful. <laughs> and uh, Nike's one of those people for sure. So um, they've got bigger lawyers than I could ever have. 
<laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of what's happening out there, just to kind of give it some um, uh, context. So we've got uh, a group out there. So NN Running is essentially, um, it is pretty much the world's biggest and um, uh, most well-known uh, running team today. And the idea is that it's spread across different countries. I think there's around about 60-something uh, athletes in the group uh, generally. And amongst these different centers, you've got you know different specializations and things, but there's one center in particular or, or concentration of runners that is prominent. <laughs> and that is um, what I would call like the Captagat group, essentially, because they're based at the training camp in Captagat in uh, rural Kenya. And... Um, that group is really famous because, well, for a number of runners, but really one in particular, and that is uh, Kipchoge, of course. And uh, that group, I would say, uh, it varies in size. It's, it's When you go there and, and you, you work with the guys, the first thing that's clear is the group fluctuates in size from one day to another. So um, there are core members of the group, and then there are people who are kind of in and out of the group, it's hard to say. And so uh, because it's a benefit to them, uh, to have sometimes more people in and who could become NN runners in the core group later on. And it's part of the, the philosophy, I should say, is like dictated by Patrick. Patrick is Kipchoge's coach, original coach, Patrick Sang. And he is still a key linchpin in what happens. So, you know, he, he, on the ground, at least anyway, he, he's kind of the, the boss from day to day. And so, you know, everybody around the group really wants to be in the group. And one of Patrick's jobs uh, is is to say whether people can come and train the group or not. And he'll look for talent as well that can eventually sort of come in. And uh, from time to time, people will filter into the group and take up a sponsorship uh, type position. But uh, Elliot obviously is the superstar uh, for good reason as well. And uh, everybody in the group, on an av- I should say on an average day, on an av- like when there's a, something like a track workout, for example, which happens on Tuesdays for these guys, you might get 20, 25 people on the track simultaneously. And they will break off into different groups. Uh, Elliot's group's the fastest, obviously. And um, then there'll be other groups at different paces, gradually sort of working their way around the track. And so you can imagine sort of, yeah, 20, 25 people sort of stampeding around the track doing their various intervals. And uh, I'd say, yeah, yeah, not all of those are core group. Um, there's a bunch that are just trying to impress the coach and show why they should be part of the group. But uh, Kipchoge really is the one they're all watching all the time. Uh, everyone takes their cues from from him uh, internally within the group. There's no real egos. I, I have to say that. Like, there aren't people who are like, oh, you know, uh, I think I should be at the front or this one. No. Uh, you know, what will happen on a track workout, typically, from what I saw anyway, you know, Kipchoge will go to the front. He'll do a few laps at the front, tell everybody what the pace is going to be. Then he'll drop back to about, you know, uh, sixth or seventh or eighth in the group. Someone else will then just take on that pace and try and maintain that pace. And um, that's for a track workout specifically. You know, I won't go into the, into the fine details of exactly what happens in the workouts and stuff. I mean, people can imagine how fast they're running. They run extremely fast. <laughs> um, you know, uh, not speeds that are just not possible for other other elite runners around the world. And we're talking about generally being around 2,000 meters altitude. So you have to put it all into that context too. Captagat is the highest place where they generally will train. It's on a parallel with E10. So it's right on the edge of the Rift Valley where the altitude is highest. Um, it's a forest area. It's a beautiful place. Very, very quiet, secluded dirt roads with no traffic. It's it's, it's a paradise, basically. Uh, some of the other places they'll go and train during a week, uh, lower altitudes, maybe down to sort of 1,400 meters. 
Um, but generally mostly, yeah, in that kind of, in the altitude training window, which we know from, from studies and from a ton of evidence is basically from about 1700 meters up is when you're in the altitude window. And um, so, yeah, you have to sort of look at the numbers like, well, this is actually 2000 meters. And, um, so, yeah, I, I can tell you, obviously I can't tell you about the, um, the gate data that I collected and the gate data that's collected all the time. Um, and um, yeah, that is uh, kind of proprietary information that goes to people that have paid a lot of money. But um, I can tell you kind of about the, some of the ideas around why I think they're successful. I mean, uh, first thing is, is and you know, I'm not the first person to say this, um, other people have been there and seen this too, but um, from hands-on experience, standing next to Patrick and the other guys watching these guys up close, um, everyone accepts the process. So nobody tries to second guess the process or say, well, Patrick, I don't think we should do this workout today. No, no one says that. <laughs> Everybody comes in the group, they know the rules and they sit in the group and they do their job and they believe in the process. They believe that if, they, if they're told to go and pace make 12 laps on the track, they believe that will lead them to the next Kipchoge. And this unflinching belief is unreal. And uh, I think it's a huge part of why they're successful because they don't burden themselves with over-analysis and um, ego and everything else. And so, you know, there was one run where I was like present, I was watching, it was an easy run. It was about, uh, I can't remember, 17 kilometers, 18 kilometers on rolling dirt roads, um, up a road that's called Kitkano Road. So if anyone ever goes there to the Elder area, there's, there's, this, there's this road called Kitkano Road because there's a school, Kitkano School there. And um, they came flying past me towards the end of the run uh, under four minute kilometers. So probably, this is an easy run. They're probably about 355 at altitude on a dirt road. It was extremely dusty. It was a very, very dusty winter that they'd had. And um, yeah, there's basically, the superstars are in the middle, not getting any dust on them at all. And then there's the guys at the front <laughs> keeping the pace who are basically covered red from head to toe. And that's their job. And they say, yep, that's my job. And if I do my job, one day I will, I will be the next uh, Kamura or uh, Kipchoge. And I think that's the most powerful thing really. In terms of the training, it's very, very straightforward. You know, Patrick doesn't mind. He'll tell anyone about it. There's no secrets. He's like, I don't know why people try and climb the fences and come and like take videos of us. He's like, there's no secrets here. Um, the training is the same workouts on the same days every week. <laughs> it's like clockwork. Um, the fartleks happen on this day. The track session happens on this day. The long run happens on this day. And so it means that the, the training recovery cycle is incredibly routine so the body knows what's coming so they're amazing at recovering and um, coming into workouts ready for that workout and it's just as simple as that there's just like no there's no fancy stuff so when i'm here i'm reading like magazines like runner's world or canadian running or whatever it's an outside magazine and i'm sitting so many people getting twisted off on like on workouts and i'm like you should go to kenya because you'll you will change your mind it will flip your world upside down because they don't care about workout specifics um, it's just about putting the work in and, um, every single week, you know, there's like, there's rarely weeks off. It's just like continuous effort and trusting the process. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a few other things as well. I mean, I think they've got some stuff in their favor, the altitude, obviously, um, favorable training conditions, the beautiful dirt roads, which are heavily rutted. I'll, I'll tell you that as well. All of them are like washed out by the rain. So they're heavily cambered and heavily rutted. So yeah, I don't think that it's like a completely flat, pristine kind of Colorado style. This is um, this is this is kind of like a massively cambered road with big ditches on the left and the right hand side, 
um, with random uh, traffic that tries to run you off the road every now and then. So, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's Kenya, it's pretty chaotic. But yeah, they've definitely got some things in their, in their favour. And I think the final thing I'll say is just group mentality is unreal. So when you've got like 15 or up to 25 people in a group, and then you've got support cars and other stuff, or just people just generally helping out, the group mentality is unbelievable. Like everybody is pushing each other to be better in, in a really, really kind of perfect way, not an ego way, but in a way of like, we're all going to go and win races, you know, kind of thing. Um, that's just unbelievable. And I, you know, I, I saw some stuff, but I also heard some stories f- direct from the individuals of ca- real camaraderie where, um, you know, someone's struggling and they get help and they start swapping drinks out and they start like giving each other help and pulling each other along and, or they just sit in the middle of the group cause they're struggling or whatever it is, you know, um, amazing, um, camaraderie. And I think the way they do the camps, the running camps really fosters that as well. You know, they, they, they stay away from the family multiple days a week in the running camp and they're just to work together. It's almost a military style in a way you can imagine, you know, a group in the a military group as sort of almost like brothers, sisters, whatever, like working together. And they fostered that really, really well. It's, it's a quite, quite amazing. More than other running groups I've seen, it's, it's quite something, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for those insights. Uh, I think we can all, uh, even if we don't aspire to, to break two in the marathon, um, <laughs> each of us have our own aspirations and reasons for doing what we do. And so, you know, hopefully we can each yeah glean something from from what they do now now when they're not yeah. running what are they doing when they're at these camps yeah great question nothing they're the masters of doing nothing it's unbelievable uh so uh so my main contact in the group is a guy called mark who's the physio for the group he's the physio on the ground and he wears various hats actually um as is the way in kenya with a limited budget believe me it's actually surprisingly limited budget um people wear multiple hats and do multiple jobs it's like it doesn't if you can massage, you massage. You don't have to have a certificate to say you can massage, right? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, Mark's like my main kind of contact and he's a brilliant, brilliant guy, you know, really selfless, no ego at all. And, um, and uh, you know, Mark will tell you like that when the non-Africans are coming and maybe they're going to stay in another similar camp next door, you know, and just like train with some Kenyans for like a month or so, that's what they can't deal with. They can't deal, they don't understand how to do nothing. And the Kenyans are fantastic at it. So they can literally pass like hours just playing cards or not even playing cards, just like talking nonsense, right? About, you know, my farm, your farm, um, you know, your car, my car. They can just like waste hours just having fun, just doing nothing, totally resting. Uh, No outside world stress or pressure or um, uh, communication device, that kind of thing. Just quite incredible. And then they can sleep. And it's an amazing thing. I wish I could do it, but they can sleep huge amounts in a day. Um, we're talking about napping in the middle of the day. We're talking about like long sleeps at night. It's quite incredible. When you go there as an outsider, the one thing you can't do properly is sleep because you've gone to 2,000 meters altitude. So it's just like, what is going on? But yeah, they can they can uh, sleep like like incredibly. Like it's and so their recover their recovery ability is is amazing. Like one day you'll meet a guy. Um, at a training session who tells you like, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a rest day tomorrow. I'm just like complete waste. And the next day you see that this person turn up and, and just knock out 20 K and you're like, Oh yeah, I feel better today actually. And you're like, what? <laughs> it's incredible. So yeah, masters are doing nothing. Um, I mean, you can imagine as yourself as a runner and as a coach in your position, 
can you imagine living in Canmore and literally spending like six, seven hours a day just doing nothing, just talking nonsense with your buddy? Yeah, I, I really enjoy my life, but yeah, I, I wouldn't mind having less to do some days and, and more sleep. I, I don't know that I get six to seven hours of sleep uh, total in a 24-hour block, so to to be able to fill that with other things that, that are rest related as well would be. I mean, I know like, um, there's been a lot of talk about it. And of course, um, you know, there are some people famously, well, I can't remember the lady's name, um, uh, runner in the U S who was a doctor or a nurse. I can't remember now. And she ran a fast, she ran some fast times recently. Oh, Sarah um, Sellers, I believe. Right. Uh, she, okay. she placed yeah. at Boston yes. in a really tough year um, and kind of yeah. came out of nowhere. No, right. she was an unknown. And, yeah. yeah. And, and then it sparks this conversation about, um, about whether you're better to adopt that kind of like um, do a nothing approach. Life. Yeah. 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 And of course we realize at least in the short term period, we realize from what we see that some people are better to be busy mm-hmm. and some people are good at being not, not <laughs> doing nothing. Yeah. And uh, what I've realized, cause I've been kind of studying this and I've been lucky enough to work with like Red Bull high performance and some really top people, um, sleep scientists like um, professor Tavis Campbell and Dr. Um, Charles Samuels and people like this, that actually, for a short period of time that's correct for people mm-hmm. but because they haven't had a really good go mm-hmm. at dialing back out mm-hmm. so if you actually train that person over a long period of time to dial down <laughs> their brain their, their primitive brain and nervous system everything mm-hmm. actually long term they would be able to be like these kenyans mm-hmm. and relax and then actually recover better and run faster yeah but whilst they're still immersed in a culture mm-hmm. that says differently in the short term, they're better to just keep busy because keeping busy stops them overanalyzing and stressing and everything else. Yeah. 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 Well, it also seems at least in the, in the Western way of viewing the world or at least America uh, where I'm from, uh, it's, it's quite common that if and when someone in the, in the, in the nascent sport of ultra running at least, um, or at least professional ultra running where it hasn't really been possible to make a living at it for, for very long. But in the, uh, in the recent past, more often than not, when someone has, has made it big enough that they can retire from whatever their previous <laughs> job was for a time or take a break uh, or, or cut their hours, uh, more often than not, they end up injured, depressed, or burnt out. And, I find that it's because they're not actually recovering during that free time that they're not taking naps. They're not getting the massage. They're not doing that extra injury prevention type things or, or just relaxing. They're running more. They, they think that, Oh, if I have more time, I should fill it with more running. And it's like, no, you, you got to the top by running this limited amount with the rest of your schedule. So if you're going to take the time off, take it off but don't don't just spend 10 hours a day out in the mountains that's not <laughs> that's not recovery either and that's not that's too much too soon like to and, and so i think that's part of the the challenge is this notion that if you're if you're doing nothing you're regressing and in fact that stress and rest balance is sounds like it's key for for those in the nn running group but also um for all of us regardless of what our <laughs> other obligations are um to our families or yeah. to our employers yeah i mean i kind of give myself a bit of a like a, a free free ride and a free card on this one because i'm a i'm a running support guy rather than that rather than an elite runner and um and so um i notice myself you know when, when i get to places like kenya or wherever it is then um 
probably within the first five minutes, I've asked the person at the accommodation what the Wi-Fi code is. And that is like, um, see, I give myself free card because I say, well, I'm a scientist, I'm not the runner. However, <laughs> I can, that's one thing, you know, that's one way of sort of telling, like seeing how this person is plugged in. You know, if you take them to somewhere off the, off the grid or just somewhere away, I mean, maybe it's even just like a house on the edge of Flagstaff or wherever it is, I don't even know. And, um, you know, you know, probably most likely in the first two, two minutes of being there, they're going to say, well, can you tell me the Wi-Fi code, please? And that's telling you like, okay, this person's got a long way to go to being unplugged and changing their priorities up. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's for sure. Um, so one thing that you, you mentioned about Kipchoge and about this group is and about um, Patrick, his coach, uh, that he identifies athletes that, that do buy in, uh, but of comparable ability, or at least with the potential to, to be a potential training partner, um, and, and contributing member of the team. Um, what, what do you think the rest of us, uh, can glean from that or learn from that? Uh, if, if we're considering training with others, whether it just be a friend, um, a spouse, um, a neighbor, or a larger group, um, some of these boot camp type groups, or or any other type of group. What, why do you think it's important to have someone like Patrick identify ability and and to align those abilities with someone like like Kipchoge? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think more than anything, what he's actually doing, and this is just my direct observation, watching him lead, you know, lead uh, workouts. I think, and I hope I hope the other guys sort of agree with me on this one <laughs> out in Kenya. But um, what I saw was more than ability and actual running pace and running level. He was very smart to align people um, who would uh, work together productively. And, um, you know, we have this thing like I'm, a, I'm an applied physicist by background. So I think of it in terms of physics all the time. When you have like waves come together, they can interfere either destructively or constructively, <laughs> and uh, and that's me getting geeky there. But what it means is um is you can bring people into an established group, and um, uh, everybody has an ego. We know that that's part of the primitive human brain. Um, so we can either come in and, and affect the group to make the group better, which is constructive interference, or it can break it down and get in the way, which is destructive, of course. And I think that's what he's from what I saw anyway, that's what I thought he was the smartest at, was realizing who's gonna come in here and um, accept their role and their journey as part of the group uh, and fit into that dynamic. Now, like bringing it back to the rest of us outside of Africa for a second, that means um, uh, you gotta be, I think you gotta be really conscious of of butting heads with um, what one runner wants to achieve in the next year or so, and the other one wants to achieve in the next year. And I've definitely like seen, and you can speak to this uh, as well yourself, like, um, you know, competing priorities and agendas. Um, when, when you get to, when you get people in a group who want to sort of uh, kind of outrun each other, you know, and there's a bit of like uh, competitive spirit between them, it's a real, it's like walking a tightrope. It can work but it can blow up really, really quick and easy too. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you're kind of like walking on thin ice to go down that road. Um, equally, you can have, um, and we see this all the time, I mean, you know, and I'm sure people around the world see this all the time, you can have quite low productivity groups as well, where everyone's very nice and there aren't really any egos, 
but nobody's actually really kind of improving. <laughs> and everyone's sort of afraid to like do any kind of like leading or instructing or to take control of anything, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, well, that's fine. You know, no one's going to suddenly like uh, piss another person off, but it's also not very productive. And on my side, I see those people in those groups quite often in the clinic and, and I'm looking thinking, why are you not, you should be improving more than this. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and then maybe they want to improve, maybe they don't, but if they want to improve, then I'm straight away saying to them, you, you're in a non-productive situation here. So every now and then you're looking for those, if I was a runner or if I was a coach in, in putting it all together, you're looking for that kind of magic where uh, the, the personalities work such that the, the, the people in the group are not afraid to go head to head but for the right reason that they want to, imp- they know that if this guy or woman next to me gets faster, I can get faster mm-hmm. and we all pull each other up. And that's hard. That's really tough to do. I mean, I remember um, I've had some dealings obviously with, um, with the guys in Oregon and, and uh, linked to Nike and the Oregon project and stuff. And, um, and I remember hearing firsthand from somebody in the Oregon project that from the original Oregon project, like way back in like 2000, that uh, Salazar was extremely good <laughs> at, at knowing uh, who to say no to and who to allow into the group mm-hmm. uh, to control the dynamics of the group uh, without upsetting the key runners. And I think... And he has upset a number of the key runners. <laughs> yes. And yes. those who he has said no to. <laughs> right, right. I don't think he has um, a whole lot of fans lately. But true, <laughs> yes, yes. But the concept, like... Uh, if we scale it down to you know uh, recreational level groups, mm-hmm. um, sub elite level groups, that's what you're trying to be cognizant of. And um, you know, like you're looking at the members of the group, going out for some test runs, testing the water. Is there a potential in that group for that kind of constructive interference, where there's a little bit of tiny amount of tension or competitive spirit? You know, uh, someone tells you about they ran a PR on a weekend. Okay, cool, that's awesome. Group's doing better. That's making the group better. And if they're running the PR, I'm going to just train a bit harder. So I'm going to run a PR as well. And that's constructive interference right there. And uh, as a, from a coaching perspective, really, really difficult to to put together. I'm, you're nodding your head right now. I mean, I can, <laughs> I can only imagine, you know, trying to coach a group and get that to happen, all the competing interests and agendas. Um, and I learned this lesson from climbing. And one of the reasons I'm lucky to come from a professional climbing background is because the stakes in climbing are extremely high. So if you choose to go and climb in the Himalayas or the Alps or wherever it is you go to climb, maybe in Alaska, with a climbing partner who, who you do not have the right connection with, you're basically dead, essentially. There's no like middle ground, like yeah. you're dead. And because um, you're trusting a life with that person again, 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 maybe hundreds of times, thousands of times in one trip. And so I realized the importance of how, like, how to pick the right people. Mm-hmm. So when I came to running, I thought, oh, this is really easy not realizing that of course people who have been immersed in running have not seen it to that degree and um so i think yeah there's um all too all too many times i see in the clinic uh recreational level level runners or maybe even like lower you know lower level runners just hanging out in groups that are not doing them any good at all Mm -hmm. um and actually underneath they kind of harbor a desire to start running some prs and going faster so yeah yeah well i don't know what you think about it i mean from a coach's perspective i mean for sure, yeah. Pretty tough, right? <laughs> uh, it's challenging in my current role um, because the majority of the people that I work with, actually all of the people I work with, I work remotely uh, aside from the retreats that we put on. I, um, so generally 
the athlete, usually an adult, contacts me and says, hey, this is what my work schedule looks like. This is what my uh, other training commitments look like. These are the races I'd like to do or fit into my schedule in some form or fashion. Um, Give me some feedback, but somehow help me arrange (laughs) my schedule in such a way and, and place the training in into my already existing schedule so that I can maximize my potential and minimize the risk of injury. That's essentially what I do is try and <laughs> try and try and do a Lego or a Tetris kind of thing and, and move things around. I'm a scheduler, um, a strategic st- scheduler. Um, and it is quite challenging when uh, an athlete has multiple groups that they already train with, whether it's uh, another personal trainer even a physio, um, I recommend that people, if they can, that they work with professionals on site in, uh, in person and get that. Um, but sometimes if, the, if, if we're not all on the same page or if that's not all clearly communicated or if they're just kind of, they vary from day to day. And so I don't know what's going to happen from day to day to day, whether they should do their speed workout before the strength work or whatever's happening. Uh, or at the same time, you know, some people, are so influenced by the social desire to be with fellow runners, which is a huge pull. It's I think it's what keeps many runners in the sport, um, but that they they don't do enough work on their own. Uh, that anytime you know someone says, "Hey, there's a run," it doesn't matter if it's hours beyond what their scheduled run is for that day, or you know doesn't have anything to do with the specificity of the event that they're training for they'll drop everything and they'll be there and often come back injured <laughs> or they'll jump in a race that uh, doesn't fit in or, or whatever jump into a relay because someone asked and they can't say no uh, which again I've done that most of us are guilty of doing all of that but uh, but it is a matter of kind of prioritizing and, and so when people do do take it seriously uh, I often have to say okay which of all of these things are you willing to say no to <laughs> because uh, one, what do you expect me to do? Like you, you have you have a group run in the morning and in the evening that's already predetermined by someone else. So what am I supposed to say other than you need to say no to two thirds of these these commitments? That's one extreme. The other extreme, uh, on a on a lesser uh, level, less professional at least, uh, I I've worked with a number of high school aged and, and collegiate athletes, and uh, when I was in the state of Hawaii. I, I coached uh, a high school track team with arguably the best athletes I've ever worked with in my entire life, like of any level. Uh, one of the kids uh, was recruited by Brian Clay, who at the time was the reigning gold medalist in the decathlon, arguably the, <laughs> the most athletic uh, event in the world uh, or in the Olympics. And, uh, and he was recruited to because Brian Clay was a native Hawaiian or from Hawaii and this kid was breaking all of his state records. It, it didn't matter what we asked him to do. He was just like, oh, I need to learn how to hurdle. I need to triple jump. I need to long jump. Oh, you need me to anchor the 400. I will do it. And he did. And and it was a team of guys like that. Uh, generally 11 to 12 guys a year were recruited um, from that high school to play D1 football. Even if they were second string on the high school team, they'd go straight into the D1 and, and, from year to year, they had five to ten guys in the NFL from that from that uh, small <laughs> North Shore high school. So it was a hotbed of talent, just very talented athletes. And yet at the same time, uh, without fail, the guys on the team were like this gentleman that I uh, uh, referred to. His name was Redmond. Um, that 
you ask them to jump in an event to do the four by one, to do 1500, to do the 800. They didn't care. It was just kind of like, okay, like we're used to playing football. doesn't matter if we're offense, defense, cornerback, quarterback, you know, running back, whatever you, you ask us to do it. We'll fit in that slot and we will do what we have to do to, to make our parents proud and to make our community proud and win the game or win the meet. So first time in school history, this group of guys won this Hawaii state, track and field meet with like six guys versus some of the teams that had 40 people that qualified and they were just like six versus the they were just warriors and they went out and and it was sloppy and they just got it done and so um i think a huge part is that that culture it wasn't it wasn't the the howley it wasn't the white guy that was going there and saying hey <laughs> i run at the local university i know a thing or two about running it was i showed up and they already had all that ingrained in them from their culture, from the Polynesian um, culture and that plantation mentality of like, hey, we're all in this together, let's do it. Um, good, bad, or ugly, whatever. The, the result was they <laughs> turned out some really phenomenal athletes and I was fortunate to learn from them and from their parents and be a part of that community. I eventually moved back to uh, my hometown in Oregon where I was a runner. And uh, and in part because of the seeds that my brother had planted and some of the, some of the seeds uh, or some of the the community and the culture that my former coach had um, developed, uh, I walked into a perfect situation. Some phenomenal athletes, um, but also some parents who had, you know, they were either they had had older siblings that ran with my brother or had run for the former coach. Um, somehow they knew that I was there to help them get to university and I had their their backs and their best interests at heart. And it was a perfect storm. I, I walked in and, and um, in cross country, at least, uh, it's lowest lowest score wins, and you you run seven runners run, and the top five are scored. Um, one of the teams that I coached, honestly, there were there were seven guys, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter to them. It didn't matter to their parents who the number one guy was. But one year we had we had five guys run under sixteen minutes on grass for five k, at sixteen years old, and. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, so that usually meant muddy grass. Um, that's pretty fast for a bunch of teenagers, um, especially you know uh, kids growing up in North America. And uh, and generally, we we could usually put you know I think that year at the state meet we put four guys in the top ten at the at the Oregon state meet. And uh, these are kids whose most of their parents had never even been to high school. Uh, they were all from Mexico. Um, their parents were all from Mexico. Um, that wasn't my choice. I didn't, I didn't pick these kids. They, they self-selected. They said, we're going to be the varsity team and we're going to make sure that we're the top seven guys. Um, and again, that wasn't something that I created culturally. It was something that they, that community, that team thing that, uh, I was, I, I exploited, you know, I, I took advantage of the fact that, that that was already there. I tried to create it, um, with, with some of the other athletes that I had, I, I, I was able to coach some individuals to, as greater greater success, um, but team wise, I've I've never I've never personally been a part of a team that successful um, as an athlete, and it, it's it's a it's a thing to marvel at as a coach even when like and, and, and it's it, it's actually scary because you realize oh shit they're gonna do exactly what I tell them to do so <laughs> I better it's it's what made me want to be a good coach was because I didn't want to break these kids I wanted to prepare them to be able to run beyond high school. I, I wanted them to, I mean, one of the kids, they're finally graduating from university. And one of the kids, uh, like many of those kids, was essentially told, you have no you have no future. One of them broke 
all the school records at Portland State University and has a future. Like he is going to run post collegiately. He is now in a, he has a degree in accounting. Um, again, parents didn't even go to high school, and uh, and it was because he he was a part of he was a freshman. He was in grade nine <laughs> when that kid when that team decided we're going to be the best runners in the state, if not the country. And he actually, he led the nation in grade 12 in the 3000. He debuted at 828. So he ran the fastest debut 3000 in grade 12, in the 3000, uh, off of some very basic training. It was like, in a run every day or six days a week, uh, work your way up to 25K or a 16 mile long run on the weekends. Uh, we're not going to do any specific speed work during the winter. You're going to do one or two cut down runs and maybe a fart lick or some strides. Everything else is just base mileage. Shows up, doesn't even race while everyone else is racing for a month. Shows up, just boom, blows the doors off. And uh, and his teammate opened the season with a four flat in the 1500. Again, off of the same training plan. Uh, and um, so so yeah, it's 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 a thing to marvel at when when there's the, that kind of buy in, when there's that kind of trust in the coach. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't been my experience generally <laughs> with yeah. the majority of the other athletes that I've worked in. It worked with uh, whether it be in a group setting or one-on-one where there's always mm-hmm. this, men- this mentality of, well, are you sure? Kind of second guessing. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes, again, questions are great. That's mm-hmm. why we're doing this podcast essentially because we get so many questions. We want to be able to provide that, uh, mm-hmm. that feedback. Um, so it's not like we're bothered by the questions, but there is that... Uh, there's something to be said for just that that trust, trusting the process, trusting the coach, trusting the system, trusting your teammates, and and being willing to to give for your teammates. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so we, I think we're kind of pretty aligned on the whole kind of like uh, on what we've seen with the groups, and um, and I think like touching on the or pulling back on a point that you just mentioned there really quick is is that artificially forcing a group to be something is pretty futile, <laughs> and um, you're right. Sometimes you just get the correct people together with the correct ideas and there's something there before you've even done anything <laughs> like and <laughs> that, that definitely jives with like um my experience and, and what i've seen um for sure so yeah this episode um uh we've pretty much yeah, we've kind of uh gone through some um uh, some ideas and um uh some experiences uh in this one but we do as we said in the first episode we do want to get into uh, answering questions from uh, listeners and just generally runners out there that we're connected to on social media and what have you. So um, in the next episode, we are going to be talking more about um, uh, some of the answers to uh, questions that have come in already. But we are really interested always to kind of keep the questions rolling in for us uh, in the future episodes, make it as much of a two-way thing as possible during each podcast. So um, for anyone listening out there right now, uh, please feel free to uh, jump on to uh, anything related to peak run performance or anything related to run physics with an F and um, you know throw in questions to us because um, um, we're always just really interested to know what it is that people out there want to know about what, what, are, what are the burning questions so um, so yeah so this has been episode two and uh, thanks a lot for listening